Welcome to our sixth episode of the Food Can Fix It podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Stixet from EAT. Today we're talking to Tom Arnold, member of the Global Panel on Agriculture and Food Systems for Nutrition, and EAT's policy officer, Emily Norford about how rapidly rising urbanization in low- and middle-income countries is adversely affecting diets and health. We explore the role regulators, private sector and civil society can play to promote healthier urban food environments, and what one can learn from measures introduced by cities like Copenhagen, Quito and Vancouver, ranging from public procurement of organic food to urban agriculture programs. So welcome Tom Arnold and welcome Emily, Emily Norford to the EAT podcast. Tom, you are a, a member of the Global Panel on Agriculture and Food Systems for Nutrition, in addition to being the chair of the EU Task Force for Rural Africa. Can you tell me a little bit first about what, what the Global Panel on Agriculture and Food Systems for Nutrition does? The panel was established in 2013 and it was really designed to bring a better evidence-based policy towards the issue of food systems and nutrition. So in other words, how have food systems influenced nutrition and, and the other aspects of, of human activity? So over the last five years, the panel has produced a significant number of reports, uh, and one of them has been produced last year, has been on the topic of urban diets and nutrition trends, challenges and opportunities for policy action. And that's a recognition of the fact that urbanization as a phenomenon is growing, a greater percentage of people are living in cities. And there's characteristics of urban type consumption or food consumption in, in urban areas that we, we, we want to draw attention to. And so, and, and come up with recommendations then as to what to do about some of the problems, and indeed capitalise on some of the opportunities. So, tell tell us a little bit about how how does urbanisation affect diets and food systems? There are some positive effects. I mean, that people who come into urban areas will at times end up having better food consumption, better patterns of food consumption. But we're also seeing in many urban societies a growing problem of, if you like, malnutrition in the widest sense. You're having coexistence of a continuing high level of undernutrition and you are also then having uh, micro, micro, micronutrient uh, deficiencies and you're having an increasing level of overweight and obesity. That's These are broad trends that are happening in, in many countries but in, particularly in Africa there, there are, you know, co- there is cause for concern about some of the way these things are going because of the longer term consequences of this uh, what I would call modern malnutrition. Now, is it, is it particularly exacerbated in, in, in cities rather than in our rural areas? Yes, I think it is How? because I, I, I don't think obesity, overweight and obesity is not on the same scale uh, in, in rural areas as it is in, in, in urban areas. And that's part, significantly because of food consumption patterns. I mean, they, 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 there'll be 
food with ultra processed foods, much foods with much more, if you like, fast food in, in urban areas than in rural areas. And they, there are the specific issues that are causing giving rise to some of the problems. And those problems in the longer term, short and longer term, uh, will be an increase in diabetes, increase of non-communicable diseases. And these are issues which globally we're getting more aware of and aware of the need to do something about them. Uh, but specifically, we're, we're putting a lot of emphasis in this particular report on some of the problems in Africa. In some of the problems in Africa. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Emily, Arnold, uh, Tom uh, touched upon it briefly now, but in, in what way are food systems and health interlinked? So the, the main obvious linkage between food systems and health is that what people eat, um, diet, is a very big contributor to a lot of non-communicable diseases. And there's a lot of attention on transforming food systems to meet the Paris Agreement and meet climate, tar climate targets. But we also want a food system that's healthy for humans. And Tom mentioned a lot of the, the challenges with um, simultaneous challenges with underweight and malnutrition and overweight and obesity and micronutrient deficiencies and getting food right and getting diets right um, and getting a healthy food system where healthy and sustainable foods become the easy, convenient default choice that's available to all people is a really important way to address that. Mm -hmm. now, now, Tom, are there any particular groups that are, that are more vulnerable or more at risk in urban areas than others? Well, I think by definition, the poorer, poorer people, I mean, mm -hmm. they're they're more vulnerable in every sense mm -hmm. and uh, you, you know some of the time they're, they're it, it's, it's probably is the case that they, they find it difficult to afford a healthier diet, a healthier diet in the shape of more protein, more fruits and vegetables. So, you know, recognizing that reality is something we, we need to start with while we're, 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 we're looking to see can, can things change and can diets improve. So, yes, I mean, but there is then the question as to whether if there are forms of, of social protection that could be tailored in a way which could give more incentive to, to eat healthier food. That's mm -hmm. one, one of the ideas that we've, we've come up with. So what are the kind of dietary patterns that we're seeing that are common in low-income families in cities such as as, as Delhi or, or, or Accra or Cairo? Well, especially people, people eating, if you like, low-cost food, food, mm -hmm. food without any great degree of, of nutrient quality. And it's, it's trying to see, can you address that and get around that, mm. that I think policy has to be aimed at. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so, so less, less, less pro ultra-processed foods and, yes. and more, fr more greens and more fruits and vegetables. Yes, but I mean, that, I mean, I'm not underestimating the challenge in doing mm. that because, mm. uh, I mean, apart from taste issues, I mean, people, people, and people probably do like some of these ultra-processed foods, no denying that, but, uh, you know, when people have a bit more income and are better off and are more educated about food, then they tend to move towards a healthier diet. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of so it's it's not it's a question of affordability, it's a question of accessibility, and it's a question of education. Yes. Mm. Um, now we can't discuss uh, ultra processed foods and food consumption and diets without without mentioning the food industry and and uh, the role of, of the food industry both in sale and in marketing of, of uh, unhealthy uh, unhealthy snacks. Now, do you have any examples, Emily, of, of how the sector can can better deliver healthy diets to uh, to vulnerable groups and actually and actually everybody living in, in urban settings? 
I think there's a lot the the food retail sector can do um, to make healthy and sustainable foods more visible um, and more affordable. And there are some examples where where grocery stores can use nudging techniques um, to place fruits and vegetables kind of front and center in the store um, instead of in a back corner where people won't find them very easily. Um, Also at at the cash register in a lot of grocery stores, you typically find junk food, candies, small bags of chips and snacks like that. But um, we're seeing more examples where where grocery stores who put small packages of, of vegetables or fruits that are tasty and easy to grab as a snack um, are seeing a lot of success with selling those. So um, there seems to be a lot of, a lot of um, instances that consumers actually want the healthy food um, if it's easy for them to find and um, they don't have to go to, out of their way to and put in more effort to get it. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom, how, how can small retailers and, and the informal sector be included in, in efforts to provide healthy and affordable diets? Well, I think that, um, the, first of all, the, the, the fact that there is the informal sector it, it plays a role is, needs to be recognized. And in some cases, um, in some countries, they're kind of regarded as a nuisance rather and not to be trusted. Whereas I think if uh, a muni- city council, for example, has, they have to maybe give a license to people to, to trade and so on. And I would say helping responsible informal traders to, to work effectively and to maintain food safety standards. Mm-hmm. They're the sorts of things that I think uh, need more focus. Mm-hmm. And here, so governments and, and regulators obviously have a very big role to uh, to play here in terms of, of incentivizing the private sector to do the right thing through the right mix of, of taxes and, and subsidies and, and regulatory requirements. How do you believe that we can best realize the potential uh, of private-public partnerships on, on health and diets? Actually, this is a question for both of you, so whoever wants to jump in first. Emily, why don't you? Sure, yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot that the government can do um, at the national level as well as the local level. Um, and at the national level, as you mentioned, there's a lot with, with taxation and, and subsidies um, and kind of providing the right regulatory environment. But local level government can actually be hugely impactful in, uh, in transforming urban food systems and making urban food environments provide the types of healthy and sustainable foods that we want city dwellers to be able to access. Um, some examples... Um, where municipal governments often have quite a lot of leverage. Um, procurement, where um, public procurement, um, food for, for schools, um, for elderly homes, for hospitals, for municipal facilities. Um, the city itself can set the standards for what they want there. And there's, there are examples where uh, Copenhagen, Copenhagen, for instance, for instance yeah, yeah. has managed to achieve um, almost 90% organic food um, for everything that's publicly procured. Um, without increasing their budget. And they managed to do this wow. by shifting more towards whole foods instead of processed foods, um, and then training the kitchen staff to to do more cooking from scratch, um, and also reducing a lot of meat. So the meat they buy is is organic and often local and higher quality and in much smaller quantities. Um, so that's been a, a huge success and a great example for, for other cities across the world. Um, there are also things local governments can do in terms of zoning. Um, they can change zoning regulations to support local agriculture, um, urban farming, for example. Um, so city dwellers have a place to grow at least 
um, some small amount of fresh fruits and vegetables that they can consume and in some cases sell for a little bit of extra revenue. Do you have any examples um, of, of cities that have done so successfully? Uh, Vancouver, for example, um, changed their zoning regulations a couple of years ago to um, to make it much easier for both at a kind of small-scale commercial level and also just private individuals, homeowners, turning their, their front yard into a small community garden. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that type of action has been quite successful. And um, the city of Quito also has a very strong kind of participatory urban agriculture program that's providing space for kind of um, low-income community members to come together and, and grow fresh produce. I think there's another set of actors which are relevant to your question, your Mm -hmm. question about regulatory arrangements Mm -hmm. to be imposed or or operated by government. And it's the actors of civil society. It's it's citizens and consumers who I think need to be empowered and encouraged to, in a way, demand higher quality diets and demand standards in the whole food industry that... uh, need to be adopted and if that demand comes no government will follow Mm. but uh, you know it's obvious that this sort of food movement is well established in many developed countries in the US and and Europe it's nothing like as well developed in in Africa and and Asia and I think it's incumbent on government to maybe give the space to movements like this uh, you know to find their voice and to demand standards that really are ultimately for the benefit of society. In terms of access to healthier foods? Yes. And, and, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, do you have any, uh, are, are there any, any examples you can think of where that's worked particularly well, where we've had civil society movements that have Well, done? I mean, I think there's many examples in, let's call in developed countries. There are not so many examples in, 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 in developing countries mm-hmm. where I suppose people's concerns are more immediate. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I am suggesting is that, you know, as part of the wider global awareness of the importance of better diet, and it's linked to better health and better, mm. more climate uh, uh, responsibility action. Uh, that's the sort of thing that, you know, we, we should be encouraging in, in developing countries. Absolutely. And just to go back a little bit on the, on the, on the, uh, on the, on the toolbox that is available to, uh, to regulators and government, how do we find that right balance between, between stick and carrot and, and, and subs- subsidizing perhaps on one hand, uh, putting in place the... the the, the regulatory environment that will facilitate um, healthier food systems, but also through through taxes such as the sugar tax, which yeah. uh, has just been there's been a huge discussion in Norway over the last couple of months now that, that was introduced. Yeah. I think there's a certain international learning going on here because the sugar taxes have really a, recently, a re- relatively recent development, and I think uh, there is as as countries implement sugar taxes and see what impact they're having in terms of changed consumption patterns, I think that will get factored into, uh, you know, thinking and political will in other countries. There's another issue, though, which is is relevant when we're talking about regulation and carrots and sticks, in that many developing countries have very limited um, administrative capacity to introduce some of these things. They don't have the evidence, but they don't either have the administrative capacity. So I I think organizations like the World Health Organization uh, really should be playing a role in in helping countries to, to think through what's what are in their own best interests, uh, long-term public health issues, which directly come back to the issues of uh, regulation of the food industry. Mm. 
Now, uh, it's no longer just about feeding, is it? It's, it's, it's also about, it's, it's, that, it's rather about nourishing people. And what is the way forward to ensure the delivery of, of healthy, nutritious diets for, for all? Well, uh, this cuts across a variety of players. I mean, it, it comes back to the food producing sector, the agricultural sector. There's certainly work to be done, I think, in, in suggesting or in helping the agricultural sector produce a more healthy, healthier food. Uh, and then it goes up from there up the value chain. Uh, I mean, I think there's a big issue of, of tackling food waste. Again, uh, that's particularly acute at the primary production level in developing countries. It's less so in developed countries, but there the problem is that they're more at the, consu at the consumer, consumer level. level. And then I think there's roles for, you know, the other parts of, of the value chain from the, you know, the distribution people, the, the, the consumer people. So I think everybody has responsibility here to, to work towards a better diet, but mm. it, within a framework that I think government should be um, directing. Mm. But it's, it's, it requires integrated solutions yes. if we're going to change the entire, entire system. Emily, what is your future outlook on this? How optimistic are you that we will eventually be able to bend the curves and on malnutrition in cities? I think recognizing the, the key importance of local governance um, and city-level leadership is very important for this. And um, the food that's purchased and consumed and discarded in cities has huge impacts beyond the city border, um, not just in the surrounding rural territories, but across the entire world. And cities also are often able to act faster and implement changes more rapidly um, than national level government. So recognizing cities as key actors is, is crucial. And um, I think there, there are a few different initiatives ongoing right now that are helping um, raise the ability of, of cities to take more drastic action in address, addressing these food and health challenges. Um, networks of cities is a great way for for peer learning. Um, the the C40 Food Systems Network is a group of 38 cities from across the world that are helping each other address their their most urgent food systems challenges. Um, we're helping bring in kind of the technical expertise and the scientific evidence base to inform city decisions, having better uh, better targets and metrics so city officials really know what they're working towards um, and what types of actions are leading on the right path towards healthy and sustainable food systems for all is, is another way forward. But I think cities have a lot of potential to make great change. Good. Now, final question to both of you, and this is a question that we ask all the guests that we've had on our podcast. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that, well, actually, I know that you live in a city, uh, Emily, and I'm assuming that you do as well, Tom. Yes. Now, yeah. both being city, um, both being um, living in an urban setting uh, and uh, probably having easy access to healthy and sustainable food the most. When you invite your close friends and family over for a nice, healthy and nutritious meal, what do you prepare for them? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, it varies, to be honest. I think, I mean, what I've noticed myself, I suppose, is over the last number of years, probably less frequent I'm producing less meat uh, mm -hmm. as a general rule um, 
So I mean, it, but yeah, I I think there'd be there would be fish, there would <laughs> there would be the fruit and vegetables, mm-hmm. and but it probably is also topped off with a nice dessert, really nice. which is <laughs> has plenty of sugar in it. It has to be tasty, otherwise it's yeah. not a solution. Emily, what about you? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, if I had to pick one answer, um, it might sound a little mainstream, but pizza. I believe pizza can be a very healthy and delicious and sustainable food. Um, room for lots of vegetables on top and you can get quite creative that sounds lovely thank you very much both of you for taking the time to talk to us thanks that concludes today's episode but don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on itunes Next week, we venture back into the world of socially responsible investing with our guest Tina Saltvet, Senior Advisor for Sustainable Finance at Nordea Bank, the largest banking group in the Nordic region. In the studio with me was producer Gustav Glomset. I'm Marianne Stixet, and you've been listening to the Food Can Fix a podcast produced by EAT.